Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. Hey there, history enthusiasts, and welcome back to an episode of Whining About History, where we're going to talk about women from history that you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. And I didn't have an intro, so that you get a really, really boring one. And I'm Kelly. I'm Emily, and I don't know why you think that's boring. I thought it was... It's been a week. I thought it was lovely. It's it's straight to the point, you know? You know what? Exactly. You know, I could have come in here with some, like, Papa Roach riffing Emily's and someone to, would have been she like thinks she's no. trying to make me feel better and it's making me feel worse oh kelly just love yourself <laughs> god damn it <laughs> kelly just appreciate the magic that is you no i refuse well that's kelly who doesn't appreciate I, her I own said magic my name you i'm emily like over you're talking to yourself i you know what you know what you know what kelly are we fighting right now no. Are we, are we going to fight on the podcast? Are we, I'm going to cry. I'm just going to start crying. It's like the only and- place we fight is on the podcast. <laughs> well, as everyone knows, we are uh, robots put together and we don't actually have any personal interactions outside of this podcast. Ever. We're basically brains with little brain stems and eyeballs. Yep. Designed to podcast. And pour wine in the little wrinkles of our chromium brains chromium i don't know i was i was trying to think of cranial and it yeah. didn't it did not chromium <laughs> it's a metal you know what is happening oh you my god you've already been drinking your wine that's what's I happening know, emily but was it's just so like good. emily was just like no we're not even going to wait to start to like drink cuz it's so good kelly mine. it's well start drinking it and you'll feel it less it's like a 3.3 out of 5 star rating no, it's really good. It's okay. Okay, you know what? You know what? I talk about it before I drink it. You know, like we normally do. I thought I was talking about it. No. I, but I picked it. It's my wine. Is it? It's fine. I don't know what's happening. Did you happening. pull up a description? Because the description on the back is about the country, not the, the wine. Yeah, I was just going to talk about Sicily. Okay. Yeah. I pulled no. up an actual description All of right. the wine. You know what? We're going to tag team this because- No, no it's em- too late. You, you wanted it. You can have it. Kelly, empowered women, empower women, and- when we stick together, we all do better. We stand together or we fall apart. So I'm going to tell you about Sicily. So today we are drinking Let Good Be Red Blend from Terry Sicilani, IGT. That is not how you pronounce it, but that is how I am phonetically say, saying well, things. I think it's like terror or like Terra, like Earth. Terry Sicilane. <sighs> So, made with organic grapes. Okay. It's like from Trader Joe's or something. It's so fancy. So, this uh, is a 2022 red wine. Sicily features an ideal geography and climate for organic agriculture. The volcanic soils lessen the need for chemical treatment, and the constant sea breezes protect against disease Disease pressure as well. What's disease pressure? Mm. I can I see I can see protect against disease, but like, are you sure it's a disease? Yeah, it says against disease pressure as well. D i s e a s e. D i s e a s e. 
D-I-S-E-A. <laughs> I'm just going to keep spelling. <laughs> Kelly doesn't trust that I can read. <laughs> and she shouldn't. He's pressure. See, here's the thing. I can totally see as like peer pressure where it's like, come on, come on, get a disease. Get a disease. Don't you want to be cool? Get root rot or something. Get yeah, grapeitis. It's, it's, a, it's a grape thing. Cool. Cool. So it's like peer pressure for grapes. Most importantly, the resulting wines are fresh, plump, and fruity. Proof of worthwhile effort in a glass. That's 12.5% ABV. Let's get it. So, Kelly, you have an actual description of the wine? I do. I understand. It says, Let Good Be is a polished wine, deep and flavorful, yet still maintaining a sense of balance and finesse. The tannins are fine, the mild palate layered and all edges rounded, a fine testament to what Italy can do with a Cabernet Sauvignon. So this is a red blend. This is. Even though I googled red blend. So I wonder if it's com- it comes from their Cab Sauv. Well, probably. Yeah. Because it's a red blend. But then it, then it says, a deep, a deep color followed by a smorgasbord of blackberries, cassis, and earthy flavors. Finishes long with waves of juicy dark fruit and licorice notes, re- resonating nicely. What's a cassis? Uh, I think it's a fruit. Is it a melon? I don't think so, but a I cassis melon. See, we have to we have to figure out the definitions of everything in these wine descriptions. Black currant. Oh, so it's not a melon. No. I was picturing a melon. It's also a location, apparently. Oh, okay. Well, good for them. I would also love to live somewhere named after a berry. Is a current considered a berry? I thought it was. Okay. I don't know. I actually don't think I've ever seen a current or currant or whatever um, you say. Cassis is in the south of France. (laughs) Goddamn, why aren't we there right now? You know, you know what we did? Um, we were recording last week. Like I was not doing super well emotionally and I was just having a whole time of it. So Kelly and I self-medicated with burritos because we couldn't get to the south of Italy or the south of France or the south of anything. So Uh, you're right. Yeah. Currants are berries. Black currants are. Oh, okay. They look like blueberries. Very cute. Well, Kelly, um, I know you have a say their name. I do. And that I figured that's that'll be part of our chairs. Sure. Our say their name is hashtag history's other host, Leah, who is now pregnant. She's fallen pregnant. She's falling pregnant. She's befelled with pregnancy. Um <laughs> so yeah, we, we wanted just to give her a shout out, wishing her all the best. She has um three-ish months left until the babies come so yeah we just wanted to shout her out and hope hope she's doing well I'm so excited I'm so excited because it's so so Rachel had her twin girls who are just so beautiful They're adorable. and now Leah is having a baby I'm like man they are just like gonna have a little army of toddling feminist badasses and who are gonna look at their moms and be like my mom's bad bitch exactly. you don't fuck with her I'll shove a tinker toy down your throat, you motherfucker. <laughs> like, they're going to be little I mean, badasses. On, it's going to be like a Lego, not a tinker toy. Yeah, it depends on the age. 
Or maybe it's like a little rubber block. There you go. You know, just like, take this. Or it's like a rubber ducky where it's like, I'm going to choke you out with this exactly. rubber ducky because your patriarchal ideals are outdated. Fuck you. <laughs> oh my God. Suck on your nook and cry about it, bitch. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know why I've made Rachel and Lee's children so aggressive. <laughs> But that is what I'm because imagining. That would be your children if you ever had children, <laughs> which you're not is, going to have. So you're putting that image onto other people's. This children. is why I can't, this is why I shouldn't have children because my children will choke another kid out with a rubber ducky. It's going to be a problem. Um, so I'm just you wouldn't care though. I'm nipping it in the bud. I would totally be the parent that like in front of the principal is like, "Hey, we don't do that. We don't behave and then like that." You'd be like, "Yeah." Okay, like, hey, like, don't, don't, like, hit people, but also that kid was a fucking asshole. <laughs> well, cheers to Leah and the growing hashtag history family. Oh, family. I'm so proud of them. They're so like, beautiful. I don't know. It just seems weird to say you're proud of someone forget them getting pregnant. Well, because they're growing I'm their happy family and they want to and like they're and they're doing the podcast. I don't know why. And... Like maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just like I'm proud weird. of everything proud that just they're doing. Weird. I'm I am happy and excited and ecstatic for them, but I don't know why proud just sounds weird. To well, me. now that I'm in my 30s, anyone who's even a year younger than me is essentially my adopted child. I'm pretty sure Rachel and Leah are I, younger. I like that because I was like, we don't know that. I'm pretty sure they are. They at least look younger than me. Therefore, they are my babies and I love them. <laughs> Still don't know if proud is like, you can be proud. I'm you know just what? saying that just, it just, I don't know why it strikes me as like a weird word to say. You know proud. what? I didn't critique your opening. Don't critique how I'm complimenting Leah and how proud I am of her for befalling with pregnancy. Yeah. <laughs> for no, being we are, stricken are... with pregnancy. I like that you're like, I'm proud and then making it sound like it's this terrible thing. <laughs> because every time we do a story where someone gets pregnant is like, she was stricken with baby. I mean, her, that's not how I ever write mine. Womb. So that's always only yours. I think there's a common <laughs> denominator here, Emily. Her womb was befallen with child. I usually just say she had a kid. See, if if an article I read says she befell pregnant or fell pregnant or has fallen pregnant, I will say that because I don't think I've ever is, had an article say that. It is the funniest and stupidest shit in the world. So not that is, is what I say no, now. I, I definitely agree. But yes, it also makes it sound like a terrible thing. Especially when you say stricken. They've been stricken pregnant. I'm like, geez, Emily, it sounds like they have some disease. Hey, Peter Parker was stricken by the fangs of a radioactive spider and he's a superhero. So maybe the baby gives her superpowers. She's I mean, probably, basically. Yeah. I mean, okay. she is. She's growing another human being. That is a superpower. Also, when you have a baby growing inside you. Are you not just a giant anime mecha suit? Mm, with a little with a little fetus pilot. I mean, the fetus isn't really piloting you. Aren't they? Maybe for like food, but the rest of it, not really, no. Aren't they though? You really want to get into the neuroscience <laughs> with me? <laughs> but aren't no, okay. No, they're not. <laughs> Kelly and I just like are so angry. I'm oh not even God. like angry. I'm I know. I think fun. I think it's just been I think it's just been like a week 
or two weeks or however long it's been and we're both like Emily's like we're fighting and I'm over here like I was just being silly but okay I'm sorry no we're we're fighting we're we're breaking up right now after this episode I mean you have to leave the wine here so you can go no fine wine came out of my box (laughs) that's how that works It did. What <laughs> else came out of your box, Kelly? Just wine. It's a it's a wine. Not box. a tiny mecca pilot. Nope. <laughs> and it never will. <laughs> okay. Um, what are we doing on this podcast? Who goes first? You. Oh shit. All right. Well, Emily's just like, oh, oh yeah. Okay, never mind. <laughs> so, um, we are celebrating as we do every February Black History Month. Yeah. And I know that last so last week's episode was not one of our Black History centric episodes because my computer conspired life. against me. Um, I literally could not down the, download oh, yeah, the audio no, for I like know. three days. I texted Kelly and I'm like, I don't know what to do. My computer won't let me download it. And I feel so stupid. So we decided to um, publish it for last week, and now we're we're now we're jumping into our Black History Month episodes. If you're a longtime listener, you know that this is not the only time of the year that we cover Black women, but is a time of the year where we focus on them because I've been seeing so much like can. I've been okay. So you know how like around Pride, you see people be like, "But what about Straight Pride?" or "What about yeah. you know?" Yeah. And it's like, "Oh my fucking god." Tell me when it was illegal to be straight. Like, just just stop it. So I've been seeing more of that kind of stuff around Black History Month. I'm like, oh, oh my yeah, God. What about White History Month? And it's like, you know, White History Month would still be mostly about, like, slavery. Like, it, it would be a very similar topic well, in a very different light. Here's the thing. So first of all, I think there is a very credible argument against Black History Month in the sense that Black History should not be segregated to one month. Yeah. But I think the point is to highlight it because it's an acknowledgement that our current educational system does not properly integrate black history into the curriculum. And even when people try to change that, people go, "Eh, critical race theory, we can't teach kids about slavery because then they're going to feel bad. It's like they kind of should feel bad. It was a bad time. It was an awful, awful thing. And you know how we make sure that we like learn from it and move past it? By teaching kids about it. Anyway. We're very passionate about these things. I get, damn, it's true. I get so, I get so hot and bothered, but you know, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons that we've continued to celebrate black history month in particular is because especially in the United States, it is, it's never not been an issue with civil rights Mm -hmm. and especially racial equality, but it seems like it is, it feels like we're in a new era of civil rights with like black lives matters, holding police accountable for brutality, coming to terms with the systemic issues that we are still facing today as the result of racism and the federal government literally like mandating racism with redlining and racial housing policies. And like, we're still, we are still feeling the effects of all of oh, that. Yeah. It's terrible. And ignoring it is not going to make it go away. So today I am whining about Amelia Boynton Robinson or the woman on the bridge. 
which sounds so mysterious. It's, it almost sounds like a romance novel, like the woman on the bridge. It's not romantic, though. It's March 7th, 1965, in Selma, Alabama. A group of 600 unarmed demonstrators march along the 54-mile highway from Selma to the state capital, Montgomery, to protest the racist Jim Crow laws that have repressed, repressed black citizens from voting or holding office since the late 1800s. Oof. Despite the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 legally ending racial segregation, Alabama has gone largely unchanged. The march, organized by members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or the SCLC, is led by prominent civil rights activists, including John Lewis and Rosa Parks. Wow. Ever heard of them? I mean, the guy I actually haven't heard of, but that's oh, really? just me. Um, there was a documentary about him that came out a few years ago. Um, I think it was before he passed away. Oh. Yeah, but it was... He's, he's a really interesting yeah, figure, I mean, but this is, this is a women's history podcast. So, In the group of 600 marchers, one of the organizers and members of the SCLC, Amelia Boynton, the 53-year-old woman, has been involved in activism since she was a child, campaigning for women's suffrage, and has been heavily involved with the civil rights movement. As the protesters approach the Edmund Pettus Bridge, named for an infamous Confederate general, U.S. senator, and Grand Dragon within the Ku Klux Ew. Klan, they are met by a crowd of police officers wearing helmets, gas masks, and protective gear. Earlier that day, the county sheriff, Jim Clark, had ordered all white men in Dallas County, 21 and older, to be deputized and confront the marchers. Unlike the marchers, the officers are armed with tear gas, nightsticks, whips, rubber tubing wrapped in barbed wire, and some of them are on horseback. The commanding officer, Major John Cloud, orders the marchers to disperse. Through his bullhorn, he shouts, it would be detrimental to your safety to continue this march. This is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse. You are ordered to disperse. Go home or go to your church. This march will not continue. One of the organizers, Reverend Hosea Williams, tries to speak to the officer saying, Mr. Major, I would like to have a word. Can we have a word? Cloud asserts, I've got nothing further to say to you. Really? I know, just total dick move. And like there there are photos of this and it's so it's so unsettling because Is um, he one of the guys on horseback? Because I just like He's get not this, on I get this like picture in my head of like him up on a horse, you know, like so he's very high above the other person just like he's looking not, down. He's not on horseback, but he's like decked out in his his like uniform and like riot gear for oh, the sure. time. And Reverend Hosea Williams is in like, he's kind of dressed like he's going to church, like just a long coat because I'm sure it's cold in March and like dress shoes and slacks. Like he's, he, I mean, he's, it's just, it's a very average civilian yeah. asking an armed police officer, can we talk? And it's, it's real. it's. It's an upsetting photo, um, especially when you learn what happens next. 
Suddenly, the mob of officers charged the unarmed marchers, shoving them to the ground and beating them with their nightsticks. Tear gas flies into the crowd of marchers. One of the officers on horseback charges Amelia and strikes her across the back and her shoulders, then a second time across the back of her neck. She falls unconscious on the bridge amid the chaos. Amelia was born Amelia Isadora Platts in Savannah, Georgia, on August 18th, 1911. God as, damn it, Emily. <laughs> I'm, fu- I'm, I'm ruining your day today. In 1911, as one of 10 children to parents George and Anna. Amelia's parents encouraged all of the children to read and emphasize the importance of education. And the church was a central part of their upbringing. Throughout her life, Amelia would work with or be connected with notable civil rights figures, but prominent historical figures were even in her family tree. Dang. So this is this was so cool because some of the story felt like a little Forrest Gump because it's like I get through a get through a sentence and then like they're name dropping this other prominent civil rights figure I've heard of and then I get through another sentence and then they name drop another. I'm like, gee, who did she not know? Right. Just can you give me a list of who she didn't know? So her father's half brother, Robert Smalls, and if you're a fan of drunk history like I am. You know who he is, and you've heard this story. It's the most badass shit in the world. Robert Smalls had been born into slavery. Um, he was actually, uh, he was the the product of um, the enslaver yeah. assaulting his mother. So during the American Civil War, Robert was forced to work on the Confederate ship, the CSS Planter, along with other enslaved people. And th- this is this is a, like, compression of this story Mm -hmm. he commandeered the ship and sailed him and everyone else to freedom because he'd been working on the ship so he learned all the secret like codes and stuff and was able to get through all these confederate checkpoints unstopped so after the war he would become a successful politician publisher and businessman and this is the best fucking part he bought the home of his former enslaver who was also his biological father. I love when like stuff like that happens. And I'm like, yes. I think, I think it's like the, he, I think the enslaver like tried to buy it, like buy it from him or prevent the sale. And he was like, fuck off, like suck a dick. So inspired by his story, Amelia would later write a play called through the years based on him, which I'm like, oh my God. That's like what's floating in her gene pool. Yeah. This is the kind of shit that is running through her veins. <laughs> so nothing else about her story surprises me. From a young age, Amelia was concerned with inequality in the United States. As a child, she campaigned for women's suffrage, which, despite the passage of the 19th Amendment, was a right that would elude her until the 1930s. This was thanks to the racist Jim Crow laws, which were restrict- you're going to back up, going to swallow my spit, clear my throat, <coughs> which restricted the rights of black Americans. After the American Civil War, Southerners were fucking terrified oh God, no. of newly freed black people and the political and economic power they may wield. I don't know why they would be so scared. They, were, they treated them so nicely. They were like family, remember? Isn't that what you said, daughters of the goddamn motherfucking confederacy? 
Okay. I'm never going to not be mad. Breathe. No, I'm- I think you're uh, justifiably <laughs> mad. I just think you also need to breathe because I do not want to bring you to the hospital. Uh, I'm just going to be ranting like the fucking UDC, the fucking, I swear to God. All right. In fact, in the early days of Reconstruction, many black people, such as her half-uncle, Robert Smalls, were elected to office across the country. To continue to subjugate black Americans, states began passing laws and enacting new constitutions that stripped these rights away. They're like, okay, we have to do some really quick rebranding. We can't literally claim ownership over people, but how can we basically do that anyway? Because of laws like this, Amelia wasn't able to register to vote until 1934, something that had been made incredibly difficult for black Americans in Alabama. Even attempting to register could be dangerous as black people were often threatened, intimidated, or assaulted when they tried. To address this, Amelia co-founded the Dallas County Voters League to encourage registration of black Americans. And like, when I've worked as a when I've worked as an election judge, there have been especially after doing this podcast, like there have been moments where I look around the room and it's like, there's black men, there's white men, there's Asian men, there's black women, white, like, like it's every, I mean, it's just like such a, such a collection of diversity and everyone's just there because they want to help, you know, they want to do a good job. They want to make sure that everyone who is registered to vote can vote safely exactly but I'm like oh my god 99.9% of the people in this room have not been permitted to vote have not who have had to fight for the right to vote at one time and we are working as election judges like how cool is that yeah (sighs) Amelia would attend Georgia State Industrial College for colored youth now known as Savannah State University Good rebranding before transferring to Tuskegee Institute. Oh, that's one of the big ones. Yep. Now known as Tuskegee University, where she earned a degree in home economics in 1927. Education would continue to be important to Amelia as she would have a career in teaching and go on to attend Tennessee State, Virginia State, and Temple University later in her life. I know she's just racking up degrees like they're Pokemon cards. She's just like, whatever, no big deal. I love to get, I love to get my knowledge on her degree in home economics led Amelia to the U S department of agriculture in Selma, Alabama. She worked as a home demonstration agent for Dallas County. So Dallas County was largely rural and it was Amelia's job to provide education about healthcare, food production, nutrition, other related topics to the community. So this was a particularly difficult time as the U.S. was struggling through the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. And it was just like a really bad time. But Amelia found fortune in meeting her future husband, Samuel Boynton, who was working as a county extension agent in Selma. So Samuel had also attended Tuskegee Institute or University uh, where he befriended another student. Maybe you've heard of him. George Washington Carver. Now that's a big name. (laughs) Like, are you fucking kidding me? I've named her up like four people and I'm like maybe on page two. Let's see. Yeah, now I'm on page three. So the couple would marry in 1936 and quickly began growing their family with two sons of their own and then Amelia's two nieces. stricken with children. By being befallen with babies. They just came raining from the sky like a plague of locusts. 
Yes. So Amelia was behooved in with children twice, two sons of her own. Um, And then they also adopted Amelia's two nieces. Their youngest son, Bruce Carver Boynton, was named for George Washington Carver, who was also his godfather. So this wasn't just a like, oh, my God, like he was in the halls when I was in the halls. Like they actually knew each other. So speaking of knowing important historical figures, Amelia was also friends with one Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, one Coretta Scott King. Again, just like, Like, boom, boom, civil rights heroes. She and her husband met them in 1954 at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, where King was the pastor. So Amelia and Samuel worked to educate poor black citizens in rural Alabama on how to vote, their rights as American citizens, property rights, and more. Because really, I mean, a huge part of the disenfranchisement of black Americans has been denying education on, like, not not only reading and writing, because it used to be illegal to teach a black person how to read and write, but also on what their rights are. Because if everyone's too afraid to step out of line... They're not going to assert their rights to vote or to register to vote, you know? So Amelia passed on her passion for education and quality to her children. Bruce Carver went on to study at Howard University School of Law, where in 1958, he was arrested for the despicable crime of trying to buy food in the white section of a bus terminal. They that should be thankful any world's like dumbest. Crime. They should be thankful anyone was brave enough to buy food at a bus terminal. <laughs> so though the state found him guilty of quote unquote trespassing, he appealed the case until he made it all the way to the US Supreme Court. Dang. Where another notable civil rights figure, loyal lawyer, Thurgood Marshall. Damn. Argued his case in Boynton versus Virginia and fucking won. This landmark case held that racial segregation in public transportation was illegal and violated the Interstate Commerce Act. Since it had been determined that federally that federally racial segregation on public transportation was unconstitutional, the case directly led to the Freedom Riders movements in which black and white protesters rode different forms of public transportation to protest state laws in the South. So, like, the federal government was like, okay, yeah, you can't do this, but the states were like, yeah, we can. Yeah. But having it be federally illegal was a huge, like, oh yeah, step forward. Exactly. So sadly, in 1963, just a few years after Boynton versus Virginia was won, Amelia's husband Samuel died. And he was a little, he was a king. Like, he sounds like he was just a real one. Samuel had been a partner not only romantically, but in activism. The two shared a fierce passion for bettering the lives of the black community. And losing Samuel was as much a spiritual loss as it was physical. And I, I'm like, God damn it. Like, we can tell a story of a, of a woman who's being abused and that guy never dies. No. But like Samuel's a real one. It's like, oh, and then he died. It's like, fuck. Like, come on, universe. Universe. Why? Universe. You're really bad at this. Do better. <laughs> So Amelia coped by focusing more time and energy on her activism, hosting strategy sessions for demonstrations, voting rights campaigns, and more outside of her home and office in Selma. So voting rights in particular 
were a huge focus for Amelia, and it's not hard to see why. Civic disenfranchisement was a powerful tool, was and is a powerful tool for oppression. Her ancestor, Robert Smalls, had been a victim to this, as had her parents, and she knew how lucky she was to have been able to register to vote. There was um there was a StoryCorps video that I saw. It was um a black woman talking about her going with her pastor to try and I think it was to register to vote. Okay. And so a bunch of people get together, they go to the voting office, and there's like all these white men playing dominoes and smoking. And she walks up and they're like okay, well, tell me the state capitals. And, like, they start quizzing her on really stupid things. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And she wasn't able to register. Like, she gets turned away. And then, so the pastor's like, okay, well, we'll, we're going to try again tomorrow. And she's like, I'm not fucking going back. Why in the hell would I volunteer to be embarrassed and belittled like that? And the pastor goes, because if you stop going back, they won. But if That's you true, keep yep. trying, like we we can't let them turn us away. So she goes back the next day, gets put through the bullshit, and she is eventually able to register to vote. Fuck like, yeah, I think about it too. Is like at some point they're just gonna be like, God damn it, she keeps coming back. Fine, I'll just let her do it. Yeah. So I, but I mean, and then that's, you win either way. That's the kind of bullshit though that people are dealing with. Like even after, even after, like you have the right to vote. Well. If you don't have anyone making sure that you can get in there and register and then vote, it doesn't really mean a lot. Yeah. So in an effort to encourage voter registration for black Americans, Amelia ran for Congress in 1964, making her the first black woman to run for office in Alabama and the first woman to run for office in Alabama under the Democratic Party. Unsurprisingly, Amelia lost, (laughs) but winning was never really her goal. It was to gain attention for her cause, and she did receive 10% of the vote, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. Like, especially at this time. But really, I mean, it was kind of like a a publicity stunt to try and and raise awareness about Black voting rights, and it it worked. Hmm. So Amelia had been fighting for civil rights, her whole life, but now in the 1960s, things were really revving up. Using this momentum that had been building for decades, thanks to the work of dedicated activists and citizens, Amelia reached out to her friend, Martin Luther King Jr., never heard of him, asking him and his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, to come to Selma to support their fight for voting rights. Martin Luther King Jr. answered the call, and he and the SCLC set up headquarters in Amelia's home, where they began planning what would become three marches from Selma to Montgomery. Which brings us back to March 7th, 1965. can we just skip it and be like everything was good after? Like, obviously, the day of itself was fucking awful. And then there's a fucking picture of it, too, of her on the ground. Yeah. It's and we're we're gonna get into that. That picture is actually very important. I mean, good. <laughs> yes. Um. So, uh, March seventh, nineteen sixty-five, or as it would become known as Bloody Sunday. You know, it's not good. I got confused by that because I I looked her up because I like to see what the, these women look like, and then it says like Bloody Sunday. So then I googled Bloody Sunday, and Bloody Sunday was also a very atrocious massacre that occurred in Ireland. 
Oh, I believe it. I, I believe Wait, there, prior to this one. I believe that there have been a lot of Bloody Sundays. So um, like, if you Google Bloody Sunday, like probably specify like U.S. civil rights or something. Yeah. Not that you don't want to learn about Ireland. Yeah, but just for the purposes of this story. Yeah. If, just, if you're specifically looking for this Bloody Sunday, I just wanted to let people know that there are other ones. So uh, for the so it was it was became known as Bloody Sunday for the brutality that troopers yeah. inflicted upon the peaceful, unarmed demonstrators who were literally walking. Well, and I wonder if that's why they named it that, because that is exactly what happened in the other one. So I wonder if they were like, oh, this one is named that for this reason. So we're going to take that name because they do the same thing here. I, I just think Bloody Sunday is a pretty, ba- you know, it was bloody. It was on a Sunday. It was violent. And it, there was no reason for any violence to be yeah. enacted on these yeah, people. Yeah, it didn't need to. So during the attack, 14-year-old Linda Blackman Lowry was beaten so badly that she needed 35 stitches across her face and head. 14 years old. So threatening. God, that's terrible. John Lewis, another prominent civil rights figure who I mentioned earlier, had his skull broken and the injuries he suffered left scars on his head that he would bear for the rest of his life. And I'm like, I've seen pictures. I was like, oh God, I didn't like, I didn't realize that's what those marks were. A total of 17 marchers were hospitalized and 50 more were treated for other injuries. As for Amelia, who was attacked by an officer on horseback, she would survive. As she recalled, quote, then they charged. They came from the right. They came from the left. One of the troopers shouted, run. I thought, why should I be running? Then an officer on horseback hit me across the back of the shoulders and for a second time on the back of the neck, I lost consciousness. Amelia suffered from injuries as a result of being beaten and burns to her throat from the tear gas. Though she couldn't have known it at the time, Amelia would become one of the faces of Bloody Sunday. Photos of Amelia unconscious on the ground, being accosted by an officer, being held up by a young man, and being carried to safety spread across the globe, not only bringing international attention to the civil rights struggles in the United States, but also causing international outrage. In the U.S., Bloody Sunday galvanized the public. In fact, the highly anticipated film Judgment at Nuremberg, which depicted the Nazi war crimes and subsequent trials, was being broadcast on ABC News to an audience of 50 million Americans, Mm -hmm. only to be interrupted by footage from the violence in Selma. And, like, I know that we're in an age of streaming where to have a televised cultural event... We're, we're really never going to have something like that again. Maybe like the the um, the wrap up of a anticipated series, you know, like Game of Thrones ending is probably the closest we're going to get. But at this time, it was like everyone's watching the same three channels. And if there's something this anticipated on, everyone is in front of their TV and everyone is watching it. And to have that interrupted by this footage was huge. And the visual comparison between Nazi stormtroopers committing violence against Jews and American police beating unarmed American citizens was horrifying. As writer Gene Roberts described, quote, the juxtaposition struck like psychological lightning in American homes, which is just a really... It's a really beautiful sentence. Bravo, Jean Roberts. Bravo. 
There are many who were apathetic to the struggles of black Americans who were spurred into speaking out. A white shopkeeper in Selma told a reporter after all of the customers had left his store, of course, quote, everybody knows it's going on, but they try to pretend they don't see it. I saw Judgment at Nuremberg on the late show and the other night, and I thought it fits right in. It's just like Selma. So this is a thing like everyone's kind of is like they know it's happening and they know it's wrong, but mm-hmm. it feels so insurmountable to fight this cultural machine that you've lived in. But seeing this kind of violence showcased against unarmed American citizens, re- people were like, that is super fucked up. And you couldn't you couldn't look away and you couldn't ignore it and you couldn't make excuses for it. Yeah. Uh, people definitely tried, though. Oh, pe- oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Of yeah. course. Um, so the event sparked other demonstrations, including sit-ins and traffic blockades. And in response to the outrage, then President Lyndon B. Johnson, who Lyndon B. always pulling out his Johnson, <sighs> signed the Voting Rights Act, which outlawed racial discrimination in voting later that year. Despite her injuries and trauma, Amelia joined both subsequent marches from Selma to Montgomery. The second march, known as Turnaround Tuesday took place only two days later, now having grown to 2,500 people. Demonstrators were forced to turn around without making the full trek from Selma to Montgomery due to a court order. I didn't get, like, Jesus. super into it, but basically it was like there, there there was a court order put in place where it's like you can only go this far. So though the march itself didn't see violence, that night – Three white ministers who participated in the march were brutally beaten by KKK members. And one of the men, Reverend James Reeb, died of his injuries. So this this march, um, they get like across the bridge and then they turn around before fully crossing it because that was the court order. But the cops didn't do anything. And then by the time the third march began on March 21st, that court order had been overturned where it's like you can't fucking... You can't do that Um, with the crowd having grown to 8,000 people this time with the protection of the National Guard. Marchers finally made it to Montgomery on March 24th. The next day on March 25th, 24,000 people marched to the state capitol where Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his speech. How long? Not long. And part of his speech, he says, quote, The end we seek is a society at peace with itself, a society that can live with its conscience. I know you are here asking today. You are, sorry. I know you are asking today, how long will it take? I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long. And like that line a society that's at peace with itself and can live with its conscience until we accept all of the wrongs that have been committed and accept them as a part of our history and a part of our present. Like they are still affecting us today. If we keep running it, we're never going to be at peace with ourselves because we've never done the right thing and we'll never be able to live with our consciences, you know? And there have been so many times throughout history, we've had the opportunity to do the right thing. And those opportunities were wasted a la reconstruction And it's so frustrating to be in 2024 and to see people still fighting against that, that accountability, that, that coming to terms with it and correcting wrongs. Cause it's like, 
you're just prolonging this. You're throwing another opportunity to do better away. And how dare you? Amelia married twice more. Her second husband tragically died in a boating accident, and her third husband passed away in 1988. She would continue her activism for the rest of her life, but here come the warts. In the 1980s, Amelia became involved with Lyndon LaRouche, a deeply controversial political activist who seemed to love extremes. Though he started in far-left politics, by the 1980s he had moved to far-right politics, spreading conspiracies, committing fraud, and the LaRouche movement was found that he founded has been compared to a cult. Thank God none of that is relatable in this The Year of Our Goddess 2024. He's also a 9-11 conspiracy theorist and just a general fucking mess who, like when I was reading this, I was like, I can't believe I've never heard of this guy. Like, this is so awful. And I'm like, oh my God, but there's so many other people who are just like that that I have heard of. So LaRouche's wife, Helga, founded the Schriller Institute, a German-based political and economic think tank, which has been accused of being anti-Semitic and has had several suspicious deaths surrounding it. I didn't get super into it, um, but at best, it's sus. At worst, it's straight up criminal. Amelia was actually one of the founding board members, and she would retire as their vice president in 2009. So, like, her involvement with LaRouche and, like, the Institute is a big wart. Yeah. And, like, I'm, I don't want to make excuses for her, but I'm like... Did she know what was really going on? Like, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's like, one of those things that you're like, seems, are, are you being intentionally obtuse or? It just seemed very, yeah, yeah. it seemed very out of character based on everything else that she's done in her life. Um, She she would like also go on to defend him and be like, well, people have made up lies about him. And I'm like, mm. So uh, in 1992, Seattle, Washington was going to create an Amelia Boynton Robinson Day. So she got Robinson from one of her later husbands, um, but rescinded the honor because of her involvement with LaRouche, uh, who at this point had been convicted of fraud. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Like he's also a convicted criminal. In response, Amelia said, I have had worse things than that done to me when I was fighting for people's right to vote. I have been called rabble rouser, agitator, but because of my fighting, I was able to hand uh, to the entire country the right for people to vote, to give me an honor and rescind it because I am fighting for justice and for a man who has an economic program that will help the poor and the oppressed. If that is the reason, then I think they did more good than they did harm. So like, yeah, and I think what I'm kind of getting is so LaRouche is definitely a fringe figure because he's on, he's whatever he's doing, he's at the extreme. And I think the impression I get is that Amelia kind of identifies with that because even though she was fighting for basic rights, she's been viewed as the extreme. So I think there's some of that she identifies with some of the ways that People are responding to this guy, even though yeah. it's not the same thing. Right. I do like what she says in this where she's like, I've been through worse. And if all you're going to do is offer this, this honor and then take it away. Like, yeah, that's fine. Like, I know the good that I've done, which I'm like, good for you. Also, huh. Seattle, I get it. Yeah. Like, no, no love lost on anyone here. So in 1999, Walt Disney released the TV docudrama Selma, Lord Selma. 
about this about the Selma to Montgomery marches. Nice. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I watched this because like that is how I learned. Familiar. That is how I learned about these marches. And actually, when I was doing Amelia's story, I was like, oh, my God, like in the movie. Because, <laughs> like, I actually learned a lot about civil rights through Disney movies. Like, that's how I learned about Ruby Bridges. Yeah. Um. What was there? The color of friendship. Yeah. That's how I learned about apartheid in South Africa. Like I wasn't taught that shit in school. And I'm not saying Disney is like got their shit together. No, not at all. But still, it's like wow. I learned more about you know. Yeah, our- like, you know that almost speaks more to like how how badly some of our education is failing us. That mm-hmm. Disney, who is not really known for being good at this stuff, taught us more than our education. System. Also, anyone who's like bitching about woke Disney. This was 1999. You missed not woke Disney. You miss, you missed the boat. Shut the fuck up. Just stop it. Anyway. So Amelia was featured as a character, but she did not appreciate her portrayal Mm. in 2004. She sued Walt Disney for defamation, stating that the movie falsely depicted her as a quote, black mammy character, uh, whose only job, was to, quote, make religious utterances and to participate in singing spirituals and protest songs, which, remember, she organized this. She's the one who was like, Martin Luther King Jr., bring yeah. your people down here. Let's set up in my house, and we're going to we're gonna organize yeah, exactly. this. So it, it definitely seems like they kind of broke her down into a caricature of a spiritual black woman. Yeah, exactly. And that that is fucked. Um, she did not win the case, which I, I'm not surprised. Uh, fortunately for her, when the film Selma was released in 2014, she loved the film and how she was betray- portrayed. Yeah. I almost said betrayed. <laughs> Disney betrayed her. I mean, sounds kind of like it. 2014 Selma did not. And like any of the, that stuff that she's alleging, I'm like, I'm not even surprised. I'm not even fucking 1999 Disney. Yeah. Oh yeah. 100%. Like, so uh, when Dallas County Sheriff Jim Clark, who had organized the deputized troopers who beat Amelia and other marchers. I, like, oh, wait, I remember that. Yep. Name. When he died in June of 2007. Again, this stuff was not that long ago. Mm. Amelia attended his funeral. Oh, damn. But instead of expressing her anger for how she had been treated and literally assaulted, Amelia was peaceful at the funeral, explaining, quote, as the Bible says, everybody's your brother. Love your brother as you do yourself. Do good unto those who do harm to you. And look at Jim Clark as I do all other racists. Those people may not be totally responsible because they are weak and they live according to the way that they were trained. Many of them conceived in the bed of the ha- of hated or excuse me hatred and rocked in the cradle of discrimination. And when people come up like that, you have to blame the background as much as blaming the weakness of them. And there are so many people who are like that, particularly in the South. They are considered great leaders by the racists and they succumb to whatever those racists want them to do. They will do it. This is like my favorite quote because it's equal parts. Like I'm a good Christian woman and I forgive but, but also, also throwing so much shade at Jim Clark, at the 
at the culture he was brought up in, at the culture of the South in general. And she's like, well, you know, he was just really weak because he was brought up by racists. And you can't blame someone for becoming racist when they're raised by fucking racists. Now, Kenya. I do, I do like that, that she's just like, you know what, I'm not here to, like, I'm not here to, like, shit on him. Yeah. And we do have to acknowledge, like, there are reasons he acted the way he did. Well, it wasn't just a flaw in his personal character. Oh, no, it's like, there is a flaw in the system. Exactly. And I, actually, that is, like, still a myth that we're struggling oh, with. Yeah. Like, this whole, oh, a few bad apples kind of mythology. Mm, no, there's a lot more to it than that. But yeah, I just love that because it is the sweetest and shadiest thing that she could say and is so chef's kiss. So on March 7th, 2015, on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, then President Barack Obama led a march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge for the Selma Voting Rights Movement's 50th anniversary jubilee. Yes, the bridge that was named after a KKK Grand Dragon and the site of Bloody Sunday has not yet been renamed after nearly 60 years. It is still named the Edmund Pettus Bridge. What the fuck? Like, honestly, just even if you just changed it to like bridge, just call it bridge. (laughs) You could call it Boynton Bridge. Like that was beautiful. Yeah. I, I even looked it up on Google Maps. I was like, there's no way that could. Oh, my fucking God. Now. On one side of the bridge is like the the Selma Civil Rights Museum. So they're like right. They're all up in that business. But still, I'm like, I know it's just a gesture, but it's also a really dick move to not change the fucking name because the dude was literally in the KKK. Are you fucking kidding me? Not even just in the KKK. He was a leader way up there and a Confederate general like. His stance was very clearly stated. So the now 103-year-old Amelia in her wheelchair marched next to Obama holding his hand. That's another really powerful photo that's out there. And then actually, so Obama is holding Amelia's hand with his left and then he's holding John Lewis's hand with his right and then John Lewis is also holding Michelle Obama's hand and the fact that two of the like survivors from Bloody Sunday are now crossing that bridge that is still named for a fucking KKK Grand Dragon Wizard shithead oh yeah with the first black president is amazing uh, on so many levels the universe got that part right that was, that, I mean, that's poetry. Oh, yeah. Uh, later that year, on August 26th, eight days after celebrating her 104th birthday, Amelia passed away in Montgomery, Alabama, after suffering multiple Damn, strokes. Damn, though, 104? And it took multiple strokes to take her down. <laughs> This was uh, 20 days after the 50th anniversary of Lyndon Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act into law, which happened on August 6th. Legacy. Amelia was honored in a variety of ways during her life and after. So here I just I just picked a few of my favorites. Um, In 1990, she was awarded the Martin Luther King Jr. Freedom Medal. In 2003, she was awarded the National Visionary Leadership Award. In 2014, Selma renamed five blocks as uh, Boynton Street in honor of Amelia and her husband, Samuel. 
but they're not renaming the bridge yet. Can we please fucking get on that, yeah, guys? Right. guys Fuck. we, uh, and, like, that was in 2014 when the movie Selma came out. Like, that was the perfect time to just, like, clean house. But whatever. God. Okay. In 2015, Amelia was invited to the State of the Union address by Barack Obama. So that was actually, like, the second time. Or, like, that wasn't yeah. even the first time that she met him when she went across the bridge with him. She's like, hey, how are you doing? It's been like, hey, so buddy. long. Yeah. Have, you, have you had me on Facebook yet? <laughs> so I'd like to end this with a word from her son, Bruce Carver Boynton, who was the, uh, the son in the Boynton versus Virginia case, also named for his godfather, George Washington Carver. Quote, the truth of it was her entire life, or the truth, oh my God, why am I so bad at this? It's the wine. The truth or the of lack it, of wine. The truth of it is that was her entire life. That's what she was completely taken with. She was a loving person, very supportive, but civil rights was her life. Mm-hmm. All 104 years of it. Like, and, and after like what she went through that she live to be 104 years old is so mind-boggling to me I just and I I love it but yeah I mean I I and like what a what a cool story to examine this really pivotal pivotal event in the civil rights movement through like uh but yeah that is Amelia Boynton Robinson the woman on the bridge the woman on the bridge Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. So Kelly, my darling, who are you whining about today? What is with the sudden accent? I don't know. You know what? I'm drinking wine. Just let it happen. Just let you it happen. You like touched your wine the entire time you told that story. Because I was speaking. Exactly. But I'm just saying you We're can't blame the speak. wine. Because I, I was pre-gaming. Remember? I like had a hour. whole glass. It's, it's, all, it's all worn <laughs> It's off. all pee. It's all pee now. <laughs> Sloshing around in your nasty little bladder. I like that you're like, you like have to clarify that it's nasty, not just that, you know, it's your bladder. It's a nasty little bladder, which is why I have to pee constantly. (sighs) Another reason that I cannot have children because I will just be never not on the toilet. Never. (laughs) It just sounds so bad. So Kelly, who are you whining about? I am whining about Violet Neatly. Ooh, Violet Neatly. 
later Violet Neatly Anderson, but she was born Violet Neatly. I love Neatly as a last name. I hope she was a fucking slob. I don't know. <laughs> I do not know the intricate details of like how she kept her house. I'm sorry. <laughs> you mean that wasn't well documented? No. Along with her birth date and the time of birth and the doctor who delivered her? <laughs> right. <laughs> God, I wish. Does she at least have a photo? <laughs> Yes, she does at least have a photo. I was thinking about that on the drive over here. I was like, I can't believe we had a whole episode where we couldn't find a single like, yeah, photo what of is, our women. What is the chances? Like, and the, they weren't even like ancient women. Like, they were. Oh yeah, you know, fairly recent. We have found better depictions from women on coins than we were for those twentieth century women. Yeah, what the fuck? So, Violet would be born in London in 1882 and moved to Chicago with her family. She's becoming a daughter of the corn. She's yeah. a transplant. I, should, I, like, I was thinking about that. Like When I was like researching her, I was like, oh God, I'm covering a daughter of the corn. <laughs> I love that that is just a thing now. So she was born to a German mother and a West Indian father. And that's like all I know. You know, like sometimes you, you get we get these women and it's like, Oh, their dad did this and their their mom did this and blah, 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 blah. Nope. Like that, that was it. That was the entirety of like her family line of like these two people existed and here's their heritage. Well, and I, like we've talked about that before that to to have a family line to know the story of your ancestors is actually quite a gift that's been denied to so many people. And even Amelia in knowing that she was related to um, yeah, hers like yeah, Robert Smalls, yeah. like that was that's huge. And actually, she probably only knows that because he was a notable figure who was able to establish himself after the American Civil War. I'm actually a little bit shocked that there's not a little bit more history because a lot of times when you immigrate, you do need, you know, something. And then there's those that documentation of, OK, there, there's these people coming into the country. They're this, you know, they do this type of work and blah, 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 blah. So the fact that there's not that just is kind of surprising to me. Well, I mean, also, if we're thinking Ellis Island... It was not exactly the smooth, well-oiled machine that people like to make it out to be. Because my my mom, when she's tried to research her family oh, yeah. lineage, it, fucked. it stops so at she, Ellis Island. Well, the reason a lot of times that is, is depending on where your ancestors are coming from, a lot of them had to change their names when they yep. came over because pe- we couldn't pronounce them. Yeah. Which is shitty. I have a lot of judgments on that. As you should. So when they arrived in Chicago, um, she would go to school. She would go to the North Division High School. I don't know. That's just what it was called. I don't think it's anything fancy. I think it's like a public high school in Chicago, you know. In the North Division, perhaps? Perhaps. Mm. um, Where she would graduate and then she would attend the Chicago, I should have researched how to say this, (laughs) Athenaeum. It's a word. Athenium? A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M. It's the A-E-U-M that I'm like, what? The Athenaeum. <laughs> the Chicago fancy place of fancy pants. I'm just going to call it the call Chicago Atheum because Atheum. why not? It, um, so currently it is a museum, but I think it used to be some sort of school. Cool. I tried to like research it because I was like, oh, like what kind of thing was she going to school for? Nope. The Chicago Atrium. It's not Atrium. I know how to the, spell it. The and, Chicago and say that word. Achilles. Um, 
So during this time, she would begin working as a court reporter, and she would do that um, for about 15 years, which I'm like, man, good for you. Um, And this really, like, sparked her interest in law. She's like, damn, I really like this. Like, I I like seeing, you know, the, the trials and seeing what happens, and, like, maybe this is something I could do. Um. As she's beginning to, like, form these interests and, like, begin trying to figure out, like, what she wants to do with her life, um, she meets a man named Albert Johnson, who she would go on to marry. Um, again, this is, like, that was it. All yep. I know is that she married him. It, it, I'm assuming it wasn't a good relationship. They got divorced with, within a year, I think less than a year. Mm-hmm. Very quick, in and out, no information on it. Yeah, I mean... He's lucky to be a footnote in exactly. Violet's story, to be quite honest. Um, she would go on to marry her second husband, Dr. Daniel H. Anderson, mm. um, who was just like a general practitioner in the area um, about a year, year and a half later. I love a good Daniel. Exactly. Such a strong name. Um, and that's where that's where she would get like her secondary last name. And this is when she becomes mm. Viol- Vi- Violet Neatly Anderson. My mom's cat was Daniel. I know. I know. He's a good boy. Didn't feel the need to comment on it. It's so funny, though, because when I would tell people, like, oh, yeah, my mom's cat, Daniel. They're like, I'm sorry, what? Because my mom likes to give cats people names, which I also do with Arthur. And people are like, why would you name him fucking Daniel? Because he's a Daniel. I guess that doesn't bother me. Like, Yeah. Especially when you preface it with... My mom's cat, and then the name. You're not just like, oh, my mom and Daniel, blah 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 blah. And then they're like, why is your mom petting Daniel? Like, you know what I mean? Like, my mom was picking up. It. My mom was cleaning up after Daniel's accident in the yeah. living room. You know, like I was like, <laughs> at least you pref, like yeah, preface it with my mom's cat. I just remember I had a coworker who was like, I can't get over the fact that your mom named a cat Daniel because it's like such a. I really like the name Daniel. I think it's like a really strong, cool, masculine name. Yeah, I really like it. But to her, she's like, it's not like, you know, I'm trying, like, it's not a very dramatic name, like Romeo. It's just Daniel. It's a very very common, yeah, like still very well used people name. And so, and yeah, sometimes people just don't. Don't like when you name your your cat's people names. Yeah, it wasn't or like, any animal. Not it wasn't just like his name was Abraham. Right, it exactly. Was Daniel. Like at least, even with Arthur, I'm sure people, even people that don't like animals named after people, would probably like Arthur better than Daniel because Arthur is a less used name. Oh, totally. And also, I loved Arthur growing up. Right, exactly. Such a good show. Should be like my cat's named after what was he? An aardvark? Yes. Yeah, my cat's named after an aardvark, not a person. God. So I sent a I sent a Snapchat to my to a few of my friends you included um because arthur scratched my eye and it's starting to turn into kind of like a black eye situation so i was like guess which one of my animals gave me a black eye this time and my friend messaged me back asking if it was max my runty chihuahua and i said no it was arthur and then sent her the meme of the arthur hand (laughs) where he's like got his fist clutched oh yeah like yeah that was that's good i was so happy all right, sorry. Let let let's keep talking about Violet and Daniel. Daniel. I mean, literally, it's she took his last name, and Daniel's like I presume stays around, but that's the end of talking about him. 
I mean, we talked a lot about Daniel with no information, so I think we've done him justice. I mean, we talked about a cat, not him. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. It's different. Maybe he was reincarnated as a cat who was loved and spoiled I really rotten. hope he would have been, like, that probably would have been, like, at least a second or third reincarnation because, like, yeah. I'm sorry, being a spoiled house cat is my nirvana. Nothing. It is it is my end point. It is there before I ascend into the universe go. to be Depends a spoiled house a cat. That's why I'm trying to be a really, really good person because I want to be a spoiled house cat in my next life. Anyways, uh, Violet would attend the Chicago Seminar of Sciences uh, for three years and get get her LLB, which I think is a law license, like a law degree or at least was at the time yeah um from the chicago school of law in 1920 she was she was one of the first black women to graduate law school in, in illinois specifically not the first but one of the first yeah so. and this is at a time where the 19th amendment has just been passed yeah yep holy shit J- just to put that into perspective 1920 which means a lot of black women still couldn't vote damn right because a lot of places were like doesn't matter that you're a woman and women can vote now. You're black. Yep. Don't I, you love how racism oh, and sexism yeah, intersects so, in such I, a disgusting way? I read so many articles about that recently because yeah. a different woman I've been researching and I'm like, mm, that's going to be in like three weeks because I had to like put it aside because I was getting so mad. Yeah. Um, from there, Violet would open up her own private practice after passing the state bar and being licensed before the United States Eastern District of Illinois. It's very specific. So Violet was one of the first women of any race in the state of Illinois to engage in a private law practice. She was the first African-American woman admitted to practice by examination by the State Board of Examiners and um, the first African-American woman to have her own practice in the state of Illinois. You know what she's doing? She's putting the law in Illinois. What? What? I'm, that was that good. Was, no. No, that was so good. That was so good. It makes me want to just say Illinois for the rest of the article. I like, swear yeah. to fucking God, Kelly, I will scratch your eyes out. Go for it. I don't really need them. Got to channel my inner Daniel. Channel your inner Arthur, clearly. I mean, yeah, Arthur will fuck you up. Um, yeah. <laughs> So one uh, in 1922, um, Violet would successfully defend a woman accused of murdering her husband. Oh, shit. Uh, yep. And this success in the courtroom resulted in her being appointed assistant prosecutor in Chicago. So, like, it was a big enough thing that, like, people, like, took notice. And this is only, like, two years after starting her own practice. Oh, my God. Um. So this made her the birth, the first, both the first uh, woman, this made her the first woman appointed to that post, but also the first African-American person appointed to that post. Okay. Can you imagine you are being tried for murdering your husband and your lawyer says to you, yeah, I've been practicing for like two years. Honestly, I would shit a brick. (laughs) 
I didn't look into the case because like I could yeah. like it didn't give me a name like of the like because sometimes it'll be like oh the case and then it'll like in like on a page it'll be like blah 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 versus blah 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 yeah and then you can kind of go and look at the court documents because like part of me was like okay was it a black woman mm-hmm. was it uh, a poor woman some other type of immigrant because I was like was it one of those situations that yeah like this is a woman that can't afford to to like have a high powered white male lawyer yeah I love that though. Like she won. She won. And people are like, oh shit. (laughs) Mic drop. So yeah. So she becomes the assistant prosecutor in Chicago. And shortly after that, she, and by shortly after that, I mean with, within a few years, short in terms of being a lawyer, she was admitted to practice before the U S Supreme court, um, in January of 1926. Um, and then, making her the first black woman to be admitted to practice in front of the Supreme court. So she's like just knocking down all of these things about where she's allowed to practice and how she practices. Jesus Christ. And this is because she was what a court stenographer. She's a court reporter. She was a court reporter and was like, I want to do that. Yeah, exactly. And now she's like doing that. (laughs) Yep. So she also would open a court reporting agency. (laughs) Because, of course, getting back to her roots would continue to be that assistant prosecutor in Chicago and would become vice president of the Cook County Bar Association. Mm. So helping, you know, um, other lawyers become lawyers. Yeah. Not bar like mm, drinks, Emily. No, I know. But you said Cook County and immediately Chicago yeah. popped in my I head. I mean, we've been talking about Chicago this entire time. No, no, no. But I mean, Chicago, the musical I know. specifically. It's the Cook County Jail. I know. Yes. Trust me, I know. I've had the same thought since I wrote this. Well, I'm here now. I'm there with you now. Don't just, push me away, know, Kelly. It was just, it was just interesting because I said bar association. And like, as I said bar, you went, mm. Well, I and mean. I'm like, not that kind of bar, Emily. That too. But also, all I've got is, uh, he had it coming. Yeah, oh, yeah. Burp. I mean, why not? <laughs> Do you think the woman she initially defended was like, okay, here's my defense. He had it coming. <laughs> I think this is a little bit before that movie was made, probably. I, but maybe that was the inspiration. <laughs> Considering who the lawyer was in that, like in that, probably not. Well, of course, they had to recast the strong black woman as an overconfident white man <laughs> who can tap. Anyways, one of the like probably the most famous cases that Violet would not even a case, really. I guess this isn't a case, but one of the most famous things she would become like known for was she was a really big instrumental force in testifying in favor of something known as the Bankhead-Jones Act, and that's hyphenated, Bankhead-Jones. Okay. Um. So, like, she's lobbying and testifying in front of the U.S. Congress for this. So this is an act that aimed to provide sharecroppers and tenant farmers, which are traditionally, if not all African-American, predominantly African-American people. Yeah. Um, But so it's aiming to provide them with low interest loans to be able to buy small farms so that um, basically it would work to transform poor agriculturist farm workers to farm owners and be able to get them on their feet while only paying minimal fees. Well, yeah, because we talked about this before that this like sharecropping was, again, part of that like rebranded enslavement and taking advantage of newly freed Americans who were who didn't have 
the tools, the property, the money, the education to like strike out on their own. Yeah. And it was like, oh, you can just stay here. Right. But you also think about this, like not only is it helping them buy stuff, but then they're buying their own land. Exactly. It's like this whole thing. And basically what it like, part of it was like the government was taking land from other people, not necessarily other people, but like part of it was like they took part of like a national park to be able to divide Mm -hmm. it up and give to people um, and stuff like that. Like, and um, like it was one of those things that they're like, okay, no, like it, it was a recognition of, Hey, let it making them be tenant farmers or sharecroppers. Like, yeah, isn't really that much better than slavery. Yeah. So this isn't, this is exactly that act of like, Hey, let's, let's, let's really end this. Well, and this is kind of, this kind of goes back to the, the whole thing with rest, uh, restoration and how it was such a missed opportunity. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she's like, Hey, you know, freeing enslaved people, great but we need to support them after that because there is so much damage that has been done and no one's on equal footing here so it's just yeah it's helping that economic growth and development for the black community the act did get signed into law in 1937 Mm. by franklin d roosevelt I feel so late (laughs) because it is i know but yeah it's like Um, oh my god and in 1943, um, a family named Roddy and Lucille Pridget, quote, became the first Negro farm family in the United States to repay their 36-year farm purchase loan to the Farm Security Administration, which they obtained under the provisions of the Bankhead Jones Tenant Purchase Act. So even though they had 36 years to pay this loan, they paid it off in five. Holy shit. It was only $1,495, but... For them, it was probably a lot of money. Well, what was what's fourteen hundred dollars at that time today? Like that's insane. One moment, please. Oh, I mean, I can look it up while you while you tell your story. Kelly's looking it up because she's a dedicated researcher. I mean, like it's probably not going to be like that much different, but it might be. I feel like it would be because it's nineteen forty three. Yeah, to today. To today. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking it up. Okay, uh, everyone put in your guesses. I'm going to guess at least six six figures. 20, it only goes to 20. This calculator only goes to 2022. 20, I think that's fine. But I'm guessing six figures. $2,956.06. So it like doubled. Wow. I was way off. But if you think about it, like these are people coming from not really having any money. Yeah. To being able but, to pay this off in five years. Well, it also, I think it shows how influential this act was where, oh, yeah. you know, they were able to take out this affordable loan and then pay it back in such well, a short amount of and time. And the fact that they were like, we'll give you 36 years. Like, we'll yes. give you the time to be able to afford To pay it. off a 36-year loan in five is absolutely bonkers. Well, I also think about, like, to give people 36 years to pay off less than $1,500 is also absolutely bonkers. Yeah, but what's like, no, really bonkers it's, no, is No, but that, I think it's good. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, we also have to, like, we have to put all of it in context, not just a part of it. Yeah, it's still very, it's still really impressive. No, and I, I think it's indicative yeah. of, like, how helpful something like this was. Yeah, and it, it, it really makes sense why Violet would be like, yes, I'm, I'm going to go all the way to lobbying in front of the U.S. Congress for this act. Holy shit, Violet. Yeah. 
So during this time, Violet was also a very active member in a number of like social groups and clubs and organizations, etc. Including, she was a member of the F- Federation of Colored Women's Clubs, which is its own thing, as well as the Chicago Council of Social Agencies. So she's a regular mm. social butterfly, but it's it's a lot of things that are like dedicated towards social change in yes. particular. She was um she was part of the Women's League of Voters and she served as president of the Friendly Big Sisters League of Chicago. Aww. So um in particular with the Friendly Big Sisters League of Chicago, she helped um I, I couldn't find how she helped, whether it was fundraising or if she donated a portion of the profits or what. But basically, she helped the group purchase a large house that would become the home, like literally in quotes. So I'm assuming they named it that, um, which served as a as a shelter for black women and children in Chicago, which is huge. Um, and then she also became the secretary to the Idlewild Lot Owners Association, which is where she lived. Um, and then... She, yeah, like so she's doing all these things. She was also a member of the uh, Zeta Phi Beta, which I think I talked about in my sorority episode, which is a bonus episode on our Patreon if you want to go look at it. For as little as $1 a month. Um, But basically the Zeta Phi Beta sorority is um, a sorority founded on the belief that sorority elitism and socializing should not overshadow the mission of being a progressive organization, such as like addressing societal problems and prejudices and um, poverty and healthcare concerns. So basically like, they're like, we can't let the fact that we're a sorority overrule the whole point of us being a sorority. I, Which is very interesting. Well, I I love that, though, because, I mean, even nowadays when we hear about a sorority, we're like, okay, but, like, on which end of the spectrum of sorority right. is it? They're also um, a historically African-American sorority that started at Howard University. And, yeah, like, as I, like, read about it, I'm like, yeah, I definitely, I think I definitely covered this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, like, they're, they're, they're a um, scholastic achievement-based sorority, not, like, based on anything else. Um, it's definitely still around today. It has over 800 chapters throughout the U.S., Africa, Europe, Asia, the Caribbean. Like, it's all over at this point. Holy shit. Um, it is also, so this is Zeta Phi Beta and then Phi Beta Sigma are the only constitutionally bound sorority and fraternity that is part of the National Panhellenic Council. I'm pretty sure I talked about it in my sorority episode as well. I'll have to go back and listen um, to it. <laughs> it. That's a collaborative umbrella composed of nine historically African-American fraternities and sororities, commonly called the Divine Nine. Ooh, I like that that's name. So the it's, Divine it's just part nine. of that. Um, I don't remember why it's called the Pan- Panhellenic Council. I think, it, like, I think it has something to do with like Greek. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so oh, there it's, is it's one of the Divine Nine. It's one of the very traditionally rooted historical African-American sororities and fraternities. It was founded in 1920. Like it's fairly old. Yeah. Um, But she was a member of that for a long time. I'm guessing probably from back in college. Um, It's interesting because like none of the, the articles I read or like things I read about her ever said like when she joined it, they just talked about what she did when she was in it. 
But um, I'm assuming it was probably when she was in Chicago seminar, like of sciences school, but I don't know for sure. Anyways. So like I said, she was a member and then she became the eighth grand basilis, which is the president. I think they just call it the president now because I was like looking on their website and I was like, what the fuck is a grand basilius or whatever it is? <laughs> oh, that's the that's the snake that Harry Potter fought in the that's second a basilisk. book. <laughs> um, but like I was like, what what is this? And like I, I searched it like I searched grand basilius zeta phi beta and it just says president. And I'm like, ah, they changed the name. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, this is a little too much yep. even for us. <laughs> so she was the eighth president of this sorority. She ended up being elected for four one-year terms in a row from 1933 to 1937. During her administration, um, they opened up an honorary membership category that I think is still around. Mm-hmm. Um, she would direct them even more towards social concerns like specific to that day and age instead of like broader stuff she would start the chapter chatters which is like their newsletter cute Um, and she would also point them toward working on the pictorial blue box which focused on the development of the Coatesville project in Pennsylvania which emphasized the creative aspects of leisure and expanded regional boundaries that was like specific to what it was I have absolutely no idea so um, the organization, so Zeta Phi Beta, uh, recognizes Violet every every year in the month of April on Violet Anderson Day. Oh, what's Violet? An- when's Violet Anderson Day? In April. Oh. <laughs> Out of the 30 to 31 days. <laughs> I will look it up. Hold on. <laughs> I need to know so I can mark my calendar and celebrate appropriately. I don't know if it like changes every day, every year or not. April 15th. April 15th. Okay, cool. Putting it in my calendar. I love that though. Good for them. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Um, I always love when our ladies have a day. Yeah. So one of the other things she did as um, president, because remember this is, this is a, I mean, at, I don't know at the time if it was, international or not but she was part like she was the national president so that that's the other thing too is being the grand um basilla or whatever it means you're the president of like the entire sorority not like your chapter in the sorority okay yeah you are the president yeah oh my that's intimidating (laughs) that stresses me out to think oh yeah same uh no thank you (laughs) i can't handle that kind of responsibility Anyways, um, so when when she was national president, Violet asked the Lambda Zeta chapter, which is just a specific chapter within their sorority. Um, it's in Texas. It's in Houston, Texas in particular. Um, she asked them to host the upcoming national convention. The, the reason that this is such a big deal is because no other African-American Greek-lettered organization, so one of the Divine Nine, had ever held a national convention south of the Mason-Dixon line. So the fact that she's like, now nah, we're going to do it in Texas. Texas. Oh, my God. Which I don't remember where the Mason-Dixon line is, but it's definitely way, way farther north than Texas. Yeah, it's like around Virginia. Um. Yeah. Uh, it crosses Pennsylvania. Like it's it's significantly higher north than you would think it is. Yeah. For being something that's supposed to be like a south 
thing because it, it goes all the way. It like touches the bottom of Iowa. Yeah. And that's one state below us. Well, and I would even, I mean, I think it goes across the bottom of Illinois too. Cause right yeah, below goes, Illinois is like goes, Tennessee. I guess if you look at it, like Missouri is the up bump. Yeah. It, like it up bumps and then it kind of dips because Illinois dips and then it goes around Kentucky, Virginia. I dip, you dip, we dip. Um, and then, yeah, like Texas. But yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. Cause I always think yeah. when I think of the Mason Dixon line, obviously I, I understand its significance yeah. in drawing the borders between the North and the South, but it's actually a lot further North than I think most people imagine. Right. Le- it, it's less of a belt and more of a like under boob. Yeah. Underwire situation. Like <laughs> extremely high-waisted pants. Yeah. Um, like grandpa pants. So they, they did hold it in Houston, and, and it was a really big success. Like, and it really just, like, like it was held in the black business sector of downtown Houston. Uh, the the meals were provided by the w, uh, YWCA cafeteria. Like, she brought in, like, all of these different people. Part of the reason that the meals were provided by the YWCA cafeteria were was, though, that there were no restaurants available to African-Americans in downtown Houston during this time, even though it was 1937. Jesus fucking Christ. Um, she also helped find houses for various delegates, members, and friends during the conference. So she's like, I, I know I'm asking you to do this. I know it's a lot, but I will do everything that I can to help organize it. So that's pretty cool. She would pass away on December 24th, 1937 in her Chicago home. She was only like 55. She was what the fuck? pretty young when she died. And I couldn't really find like a cause of death. So I would assume it was natural in some way. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's always uh, so like she obviously lived an incredible life and a lot of life in her 50 so odd years. I think it's 55. But still, when like someone is on such a roll like this, and then they die at fifty five, oh, like sixty five. Okay. Oh, s- still yeah, that might be someone. I don't know. I'm trying to like look up specifically like how she died, and it's coming up with a lot of different dates. But the date like I consistently saw was 1937, which would make her fifty five. But yeah, like she did a so much. She broke so many barriers. Like talk about shattering the glass ceiling. Um. She shattered the glass ceiling and then used it to cut her enemies. Sure. I mean, she, seems, like a she really, seems like a pretty peaceful person. No, but like, I or mean. like threatened. More like threatened I her mean, enemies. metaphorically, you know. A threaten. With her intelligence and her capabilities. Um, uh, one thing she did do before, like right before she died was she donated um, her summer, summer home in Idlewild to the sorority. And it's called like Birch Haven. Oh, cute. I love that. But yeah, like, obviously, um, Violet did. She broke a lot of glass ceilings. She campaigned her whole life for, you know, what she knew was right. Not even thought. What she knew was right. Whether that was being a lawyer and fighting for a woman who didn't murder her husband. Whether that was fighting to make sure sharecroppers could actually own their own land. Um, Or just, like working for the good of Chicago or her sorority or whatever it was, like whatever she put her mind to, she was like, I'm just going to do what's in the best interest of people. 
I think that's one of the most admirable things about her is like she's a court reporter and she sees the lawyers and she's like, I want to do that. So she does it. And then she sees these injustices. She's like, I'm going to do something about that. And then she does it. Oh, yeah. Like she's for me, doer. for me, getting up in the morning might be the most significant thing I do all day. Just getting myself out of bed might be the most incredible thing I do. Yeah. <laughs> that's in, that's amazing. Lady Illinois. I'm not going to let that go because I think it's really clever. If you make the title of the episode, I'm quitting the podcast. But I already wrote it down. I can't think of another one. I will think of one. All right. Well, if you don't send it to me by the time I schedule this, it's Lady Illinois. A week almost. No, I'm kidding. I have like three days, but still. I mean, that's fine. It's, I don't know. I I was trying to think of one, but I couldn't think of one. Like, I saw one one article was titled like "Not a Shrinking Violet," and I'm like, eh, I might actually like Illinois better, which is saying a lot because Kelly fucking hates I it. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just. I think maybe because I'm like, she's not even like like yes, yeah, she lived in Chicago most of her life, but I'm like, she's not even from Illinois. Hey, hey, you don't have to be from Illinois to be a daughter of the corn. We're very we're a very accepting group. We accept anyone into the folds of our leaves, into our corn knobby golden goodness. I don't even know if you can consider yourself a child of the corn anymore. How long have you been in Minnesota? I was literally born in Illinois. I will, I've lived as a daughter of the corn. I will die as a daughter of the corn. I like that. Like you don't have to be born in Illinois to be considered a daughter of the corn. You can move there. But if you leave Illinois, you don't get to become something else. You're stuck. You're stuck as a corn. I get to decide my own identity, I'm, Kelly, and no, I am corn. I'm just saying, like, that's what it sounds like you're saying. I am corn. That's great. <laughs> corn is wonderful. Corn Go is wonderful. It. It's a beautiful lump of knobs. It's got the juice, it's Kelly. Got the juice. It's got the juice. So, Kelly, what are you thankful for? Way to just like lead into that. No preamble. There was, there was no segueing out of that. We just had to go for it. I'm sure we could have found one. You just didn't, you know. All right, all right. Let's let's no, rewind. It's, it's got the juice. Kelly segue. <laughs> I said you would have to let me think See? about it. Um, what am I thankful for? Um, hmm, it's been kind of a weird week this week. I don't know. I guess yeah. I think I think right now in this moment. I'm just thankful the week is over and I don't have anything going on this weekend. And so, yeah, I'm thankful for that. Just to have like a chill, a chill weekend. What are you thankful for? Um, I'm thankful that uh, I got to see Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Yeah. The other night. Uh, it was a local production. And it was really cool, especially like our city, I think, is has a lot of good in it, but there's also a lot of like homophobia, a lot of racism, a lot of like we all have, that bad we have nasty shit. Very strong versions of both sides. Yeah. But to see a like sold out show for Hedwig and the Angry Inch was so cool. Um there was a local drag queen who was there who also did the choreography for the show who was That's incredible. Super cool. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was just incredible. And, uh, a friend of mine was in it. Who's also a friend of the podcast. I hope she hears this. What's up, Alina? She made such a hot eighties rocker bitch. Like it was incredible. 
Um, but she did such a good job. Everyone was so amazing. And it's it was a really powerful show. And it was definitely one of those shows where you were laughing one second and then like devastated the next and then laughing. That's kind of what I've heard following. about that show is that, yeah, it's a lot of very quick ups and downs. Yeah. But the, you know, the person who plays Hedwig really has to command the room and carry the show in such a way where I'm like, that kind of pressure actually makes me physically ill. But the the actor did such a good job. Like good. he was he was incredible, and it was a it was a beautiful show, and it was really cool to see a bunch of people of all like of all like different ages and genders and like just come out for this. So that was awesome. Oh yeah, and I got to fuck a lollipop, so that was cool. I mean, you like rode a lollipop I from what you told me. Dry humped a lollipop in front of a bunch of people, and that was amazing. Someone told me I did a good job. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I like that someone was like. Good job. I know how to ride my giant lollies. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, the person could have just asked Kurt or your fella to be like, hey. <laughs> so is that indicative of her typical of performance? Her performance? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was funny because apparently, like, I was kind of like towards the back of the stage and then Hedwig is with some other, like, people pulled from the audience up front teaching them the electric slide. And so Kurt was watching them and then he looks over. He's like, oh, yeah, my girlfriend's up there and she's dry humping a lollipop. Like he he like was not paying attention to me at all. And I was like, oh, all right. Well, you know, it's not every day that I that I grind on a lollipop. So, you know, maybe maybe appreciate that a little more. I don't know. Maybe Whatever. Appreciate. Maybe appreciate it. I'm just saying. I don't just have that lying around my house. I can't just whip it out as a prop whenever I want. I mean, I'm sure we could get you one. Oh, I should see what they do with it when the show's over. Yeah, you know people. <laughs> hey, Alina. <laughs> I established a really intimate connection with, with that, that lollipop. lollipop. Could I like, have it. You know, could you like give it me my number and like maybe give me its number and we can just we can just chat and just see what happens. Just text, whatever. If something happens, it happens. <laughs> It's a very weird way to talk about a lollipop. Thank you so much for listening to another completely fucking unhinged episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory. Instagrams at WAHPAD. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com where you can find a link to all of those social medias, a link to all of our episodes, as well as a link to our Buy Me a Coffee, whereas for as little as $5... One time, you can buy us a bottle of wine. You can also donate for as little as $1 a month to our Patreon for some extra bonus content, like the sorority episode I mentioned a few times. Just a few. Just just a, just a handful. We also have some sweet-ass merch that is also linked on our website. And please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen, because it makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. And it pisses off assholes. Yeah. Yeah. They, think of that person. Think of an asshole. That person whose face just popped up in your mind. Leave us a five-star review, and they're going to hate it. It's going to so keep much. them up at night. Yeah. Yeah. Like a constantly full bladder. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. Have an empowered day, y'all. Bye. Bye. <laughs>